Thanks for listening to the Pro Video Podcast. Weekly insights into everything video. Proudly presented by worldpodcast.com. Here's the host, Blair Walker. Hi everyone and welcome to the Pro Video Podcast. Every week we try and look at different areas of the video industry and film and television. And this week we've got an amazing guest, a longtime friend of mine and a past co-worker as well. Dylan Reeve, welcome to the Pro Video Podcast. Hey Blair, how are you? Yeah, good mate, good. We haven't had a chat for a while. No, that's fair to say. Yeah, last time we caught up for a coffee was a wee while ago. Time flies, and since then you've had an amazing film come out, and that movie is Tickled. Do you want to tell the audience about Tickled? Um, <laughs> all right, so how do we how do we approach this? Let's let's approach this from the perspective of me being uh, a sort of technical video person. Right? I've been an editor for. Uh, 12, 15 years, something like that. And, you know, just like anyone else, I check my Facebook and see what my friends are up to. And um, one day on Facebook, I saw my friend, uh, who's a journalist, David Farrier, um, just posted this screenshot of a weird interaction he'd had on Facebook uh, with a company that was paying young men to be tied up and tickled, which, you know, is... Not that startling if you spend a lot of time on the internet. So that wasn't so weird. The weird thing was that David saw this and thought it was interesting. Would make a quirky little story for Nightline that he was working on at the time, and um, sort of said, "Hey, can I do a story about this?" And they came back with uh, not just a no, but they came back and said, uh, "No, we don't want to have anything to do with a homosexual journalist," um, which is an unusual response from a company that makes uh, videos about young men being tied up and tickled by other men. And I think that piqued David's interest and it piqued mine as well. And I, you know, um, like to waste my little free time um, by searching and, and researching things on the internet. So I started digging into this company. And between David and I, we quickly figured out that things weren't all as they seemed. And um, the, the sort of the aggressive responses from this company got more and more aggressive and there was suddenly legal threats and, and all sorts of things. Um, and we decided that it seemed like it might be some sort of documentary. And so we made a documentary. So how early on in the process after doing the research did you decide that it was a documentary or was it as it evolved it was just really obvious it needed to be one and so you started documenting it and filming it? I think what happened was we, we both started writing about it independently. So David was writing, was writing like blog posts on the Three News website and I was writing just blog posts on my personal website just about the weirdness that we were uncovering and, you know, and our suspicions about what was really happening. There were two things that happened. One is we got a bunch of cease and desist letters and things like that that seemed like we couldn't necessarily tell the story as it was unfolding because we you know, needed to vet a lot of things. So that was one thing. And the other thing was that it was actually getting too complicated to write about. And we were starting to talk to people, you know, on the telephone, having like phone interviews with people about what was what their experiences had been, things like that. And so I think quite quickly we thought, well, let's try and make a documentary of this. And we just fundraised on Kickstarter initially because we wanted to get into it quite quickly. We'd learned when there was going to be a, a shoot happening in Los Angeles. So we thought, well, we can go there. So we did that quite quickly, but then at the same time, they sort of came to us with some sort of weird olive branch to say, hey, let's, um, you know, we'll send some representatives over to, to explain all of this to you. 
uh, and then you won't you know you won't have any weird questions anymore and we can just put this whole thing behind us and so that was a bit weird they were sending three guys from the US to tell us why there wasn't a story which is a strange thing to do when there isn't a story and so from that point we sort of knew we needed to be filming from the moment they landed because we knew whatever was going to happen there that we needed to have something whatever happened further down the line we needed to be rolling on this stuff so yeah we got off the ground as quick as we could to make that happen so and then it all sort of unfolded more from there you were a co-director with david farrier and um who was filming and who was doing audio and what were the other roles and people involved in the production of the documentary so from a technical point of view the documentary takes two stages the first one is we we fundraised on kickstarter and we raised say around about twenty five thousand dollars i think it was and that was what we'd factored we needed to fly four of us to the u.s uh to hire some cars and get some hotel rooms and that was literally it and we were going to chase the story we had no no one was being paid we didn't have anything like that and so um i got a friend of mine uh, eve samar i don't know if you know eve um he's a cameraman dop um and another guy uh, nick who's a a soundie and also a, a rents gear and we, we talked to them and they handed it helped us out we didn't have a soundie on the first trip it was it was the the two of uh, it was David and I, and we had a researcher named Dan, a sort of researcher um, collaborator, and we took Eve, who was the the DP, um, and the four of us went, and we started shooting what we thought was probably going to be maybe you know a one hour documentary that we could sell for a couple of bucks on Vimeo or something, um, and we we spent all our time and all our money. And we did all the things we thought we needed to do. We, we went to the places we thought we needed to go to and we spoke to people we thought we needed to speak to. And then we came back to New Zealand and we immediately thought we haven't got the whole story. It was as we were talking to people, we realized that there was more to the story, that we didn't have time or money to, to cover. And so then we sort of, we had this decision to make, which was, do we tell the story we have now, which is the story we thought we were going to tell, or do we try and find more money and more time and make a bigger story? And it was quite difficult because um, having been backed by Kickstarter, you know, we'd kind of made sort of projections about how we thought we'd go and when we thought we'd release a thing and what we thought we'd be able to offer people. Yeah. And that quickly became difficult to fulfill. And that it's a really stressful position to be in, to have kind of, you know, promised people things or, or at the very least kind of, you know laid out this grand plan and then not be able to do the thing and then more than that because of the legal threats we were facing um and because of the the sort of complexities about trying to actually raise financing to to do a bigger film we couldn't really tell anyone what was happening but what happened is we we went to the film commission in new zealand and they um sort of partnered up with another company in the states and between the two of them we raised money to go and do a bigger documentary and they said think big make it cinematic so we brought on a, a proper producer, uh, Carthew Neal, who also produced Hunt for the Wilder People around the same time. Um, and uh, for a variety of reasons, we ended up getting a, different, a slightly different crew for our second trip to the States. Um, so that was DP, um, Dom Fryer, Dominic Fryer, and we had a sound op who was called Cam. So Cam was the sound guy and Dom was the camera guy. That's weird. <laughs> um, and, and we went back and sort of, we revisited a lot of the people we'd spoken to the first time and sort of went more in depth and we also managed to, to go some places and speak to some people we couldn't get to the first time and, and flesh out the story some more. 
So how long of a process was this from the initial research to um, the second stage of filming and then production and then actually um, getting the film out there? So the very first messages on Facebook between David and Jane O'Brien Media were, I'm going to say April 2014, but it could have been May. It was April or May 2014. We were in the United States by July. We were there for July 4th, so we were there around that beginning, end of June, beginning of July for the first trip. We came back, we fundraised, we were then back in the US shooting the bulk of what's ended up in the finished film. Um, that was in late January and February of 2015. And then the film premiered at Sundance in January 2016. So from the very first interaction to the film premiering was about 18 months. Which um, doesn't seem like a long time for a feature film, but for a documentary and very much a passion project, because it sounds like the money that was raised for this was really literally just co- um, covering production costs. Certainly um, was the first time round. Um, that, that first round, the Kickstarter round, was, was definitely very shoestring. Yeah. Um, once we had the Film Commission and MPI... Um, on board we we had a bit more sort of leverage a bit more leeway and a little bit more opportunity yeah but yeah it was still you know it was still mostly a part-time project for me david was able to commit a bit more time to it um, at various stages but uh, yeah it was a lot of work with no sort of clear idea of even where it was going like yeah for, there was a period of time where it looked like legally we might never even be able to release it so yeah it was it was you know, challenging, and then and then the response that it got and the the success that it's had was incredibly gratifying, but also you know, in many ways, kind of a fluke. Yeah, it's it's amazing how much of an impact it's had worldwide. Um, I, I'm often hearing about it. Um, the first time I heard about it was on the Dollop podcast, where <laughs> they did a show on that. Guys, yep they they did a show on the on the story as as we'd first uncovered it. So really early. Um, they sort of found the story. They, so if you listen to the Dollop podcast now, like if you've picked it up somewhere along the way, you know there's they're a show of sort of mostly about American history. <clears throat> but back when they did the Tickled story, which was maybe their third episode, um, they were still finding uh, finding out what the what the show was. And so at that mm. point, it was just Dave Anthony was just telling Gareth this this um, crazy story that he just read on the internet, basically. Yeah, uh, and so that was that was really exciting to hear someone else kind of telling the story and, and just having their minds blown by what was happening. Yeah. Um, and I guess that was kind of encouraging. I was listening to, um, the collective podcast, which is, um, an Ash thought pod- podcast and he's, um, very well known, uh, motion designer, uh, working on, um, number of feature films. And he mentioned it to one of his guests on his podcast that, you have to watch Tickled. It's, it's really hard to explain it, and you just have to watch it. So I've, I've heard it on many different places, people um, reflecting on how much of a mind-bender it is as to watch this documentary unfold. Yeah, it was, it's, it's really... Um, there's something kind of indescribable about making a thing and putting it out into the world and then seeing people react to it. Uh and luckily for us, the reaction has mostly been good. Um, but it's, you know, there are also people out there who have a different opinion, and that's fine. 
what it's made me realize is um, I don't choose to express negative opinions about things like people's creative work anymore. Like, so if I see a movie and I don't like it, I'm just not going to say anything about it because yeah. uh, A, um, why? And B, the people who made it have heard enough negative things about it. You don't need to add to that. But if I see something I like, um, I'm now sort of trying to go out of my way to say that I like it and and seek out the people who made it and tell them that I liked it because it's it's great to hear that and to hear it from all sorts of weird places and and to hear it from, in some cases, people you um, really look up to. Um, yeah. and, and people I've, you know, since this, people I've um, sort of shouted out at, you know, about things they made that I liked have said, wow, that's really amazing coming from you because we love Tickled, which is a, an insane thing to hear back. Like I watched uh, American Vandal on Netflix, which is a really awesome, not quite true crime story series. Um, and I sort of made, tweeted out at the at the guys who made it and said, hey, this is fantastic. I, I love this. And they're like, oh, wow, that's really awesome. Tickled was um, a constant sort of reference point in the writer's room. Wow, that's epic. Yeah, I really like what you're saying there about um, feeding back on positive. I think that um, myself, I really try to stay positive and, and do the same where I'm not commenting on negative. It really does feel like online is just such a volume of negative feedback from people and it seems that like those negative comments are the ones that are the loudest at times rather than the positive support, which I feel in our industry um, is better at doing than others. It's amazing that you can, like, as a creator, right, you can, you put something out on YouTube or Vimeo and you get, like, 25 people saying that's really fantastic and one guy comes in and says, that's bullshit, you're just ripping off Casey Neistat or something, you know, like, and the the comment that's going to stick with you is the negative one and it's mm-hmm. like, I don't want to, I don't want to add to that. It's, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's our, it's a weird part of our psychology that we, that we focus on those things as, you know, as, as creators, we focus on negative feedback. Like that's the stuff that sticks with us. Yeah. It's um, a, and it's so a, I don't want to yeah. make that worse. It's interesting that when I studied um, early on in the process, they really told us positive critique. You know, it's different from negative criticism. It's a, a positive critique of work where there are things that can be improved. But if you're just saying what's bad without giving options, um, of your thought on how it could improve, then it's really just um, bashing rather yeah. than supporting. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's, there's so much of that. The negative, uh, the internet can be a horribly negative place. Um, and there's also, there's, a, there's a, a, a matter of sort of self-selection to it, right? Like, yeah. where you, can, you can sort of like something and kind of have nothing to add to it. But when you've got, you know, it, it, people get rewarded for for hot takes, you know, and it's like, I don't know. I'm just not into it anymore. I've just, and it's not just, you know, it's not just creative work, of course, as well. It's all sorts of other things. People, you know, get all these uh, reaction points for, for jumping in with some, you know, opinion that, that is um, confronting or, or confrontational. And it's like, just stop. Yeah. So my goal for this podcast is to be a supportive, um, entertainment conversation for the listeners to um, enjoy. I started listening to podcasts a long time ago, and one of the early ones that I really got into was actually yours, 
which you did for quite some time as well. Which one was the this? One sort of <laughs> that discourse. It was yeah, discourse. Still do it theoretically, but but kind of took a three year hiatus, and then it turned out no one listens anymore. <laughs> don't so, long, um, if you yeah. if you think of making a podcast, my recommendation is don't stop for three years because right. um, you can't easily start again. You got to rebuild that audience from scratch. Yeah, it's, they just go. Um, yeah, it you know it's it's hard and. Um, so we started a well I didn't start the podcast actually I just I, I kind of accidentally turned up on it for a while um, but my friend Morgan started a podcast and it was talking it kind of started uh, about technology and then it became kind of about um, sort of technology and entertainment and then there was politics and then it was just talking shit for a while um, and then I don't know it's it's kind of hung around that sort of general nexus of those things just stuff that was interesting to us I suppose and it was kind of it was really just us having a chat about things we'd seen over the last week or two um, and you know and what we thought about them yeah um, it was, and it's, it's kind of fun to, to do that and put it out there and, and hear from people but it's it's um, hard work and I think we both had like Morgan had a kid and um, I have some kids uh, and so I think it just was something that fell by the wayside and so it's you know, it's good that you're able to find time in your life to make a thing for other people because um, it's good. And I, I tried for a while. I, I recorded three episodes of a podcast I was calling um, Talking Post, which is going to be about post-production and stuff. But um, I think I only released one and then I lost the recordings and then I just couldn't be bothered starting again and didn't have time and realized I didn't have time. Yeah, it definitely is um, prioritizing it. It takes up a lot more than I ever thought it would. But it has been really good to connect with so many people um, globally that I think I wouldn't have made the effort to as as much and then have a conversation and get to know someone in depth in that hour. And yeah, it's a really good way to connect with people. I've enjoyed that. Yeah, 100%. It's it's great to talk to people, you know, and, and that's I really uh, enjoy. I think that's what I really enjoy about listening to podcasts. I enjoy listening to people just talk about things so like a lot of the podcasts I listen to are, are primarily interview podcasts rather yeah. than you know some of the more constructed ones because it's interesting just to hear people talk about themselves uh, and talk about what you know what interests them yeah especially when they're sort of in a similar area that you might be but you know everybody's life is so different the experiences of how we got here are so varied that um, just just hearing those stories really um, enlightens you to other people and the, that they still have the same challenges or different challenges and you know you don't just come out with amazing work or a brilliant life and life is actually a bit of hard work and effort and hearing hearing that is what I really like to keep me keep myself motivated as I keep going forward that's true for most of us except YouTubers they just um, <laughs> video themselves going about their daily lives and hundreds of people watch them as far as I can tell I'm not sure <laughs> So I want to understand um, your career path because when I first met you, that was quite some time ago, and you'd already um, been you'd already been doing editing and offline editing for some time at that point, and that was at Images Sound way back a few years back, and now you're you're the um, post production supervisor of one of New Zealand's um, longest standing long form TV shows, really popular show. So. Do you mind sort of sharing what you're doing now and your career path to get there? All right, let's start. I've got, I've got kind of a, a spiel on this. So cool. when I was 
I'm going to say eight. Um, I wore, I lived in Devonport on the North Shore, and one day I was I'd ridden my bike down into the, the Devonport Village, and it was like the arts, the Devonport Arts Festival or something like that was on, and TVNZ uh, had one of their OB trucks there called TVNZ Moving Pictures at the time. And they had the cameras set up and they had the big vision mixer inside and they were inviting people to have a look through and I sort of played with a camera and pointed at a thing and zoomed in and zoomed out and then I went inside and they showed me how to do a heart wipe on the vision mixer and then I got one camera to point at one person another camera to point at another person and I put a heart wipe and so there was like this little, you know, inset heart thing and I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> I want to make film and TV. Um, and that was at age eight. Um, so it's hard to make film and TV at eight. Um, and then... Well, fast forward a little bit, I was at Takapuna Grammar for a little while, um, they had a media studies program there, that was really cool, because the teacher was really um, really into experimenting and, and things, so we got to we got to fool around with it, and there was used to be a TV show called uh, In Focus, I think it was called, and it was like a kids TV show, and they went out to schools to find um, sort of probably 13 to 16 year olds and they'd give them a little assignment and get them to shoot and edit a video and that would become a segment on the show and so my media studies class did a segment which went on tv so that was really cool um, and they they brought us into the studio to have a look around at their editing facility and stuff like that and that was when when editing was you know um, punch and crunch tape machines like in the early 90s um, before sort of avids were a thing um, and then my media studies teacher recommended that I could try, there was the South Seas Film and TV School was a new thing, it had just started like a couple of years before, and so I went and did an introductory course there over, over the Christmas holidays, um, and I was the youngest person to do it at the time, I think I was like 13, and then I went away, and I went to a different school, and then I kind of accidentally got a full-time job. Um, I, I started working at a company called iHug, which was an internet service provider, because a friend of mine worked there and I was into the internet and I just started working there and that, that job accidentally lasted for, oh God, like six years. Um, and I went through a few different different aspects of, of work there. Um, and I bought myself, well, along the way, I bought myself a secondhand TV camera. So I taught myself how to use that, you know, like a big, you know, shoulder camera that used to yeah. belong to 3News. Um, and then blah, 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 I got, I ended up working in, in IT, I was a computer programmer, and then I got made redundant, and so at about, at age, like, 22, I'd just been made redundant, I had some money, and I thought, I should probably try and do what I wanted to do, and so I went to South Seas, did a one-year course, I finished that at the end of 2003, and then I got a job at, uh, what was then Touchdown TV, and has been since then has been iWorks and is now Warner Brothers Television New Zealand. Um, and I got promoted really quickly into an online editor role, and I was there for about I don't know, goodness, like only about ten months before I moved on to another role. And then I ended up at, uh, I think by two thousand six, I think I was working at Images and Sound as a as a um, staff editor. And I've just kind of bounced through a few different roles since then. I went from there to a company called um, Bunker Media, where I did both uh, some web development programming and video stuff because they did both of those things. Worked on a show called The Jackie Brown Diaries. Um, then I left there and went to, I think I went to TVNZ after that. Worked at TVNZ for a few years. Went back to iWorks very briefly. And then I've been working at Shortland Street for about the last uh, six and a half years. So there you go, that's it. And so in short, at Shortland Street we make um five episodes of scripted 
half hour television every week. And so in the time I've been there, I've made, I've online and graded 1,600 and let's say 25 wow. half hour television drama episodes. That's a lot of content. It's a, a, a very lot of content. You would have seen some massive changes over that time too, as um, going from going to HD and the workflows from SD, and now with 4K and 6K and 8K coming. Um, how, how's the <laughs> oh transition God. been? Thankfully, I don't have to think about 4K and 6K yet. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's um, just working on a project today, and it was all 6K footage red footage and it's like oh this is this is pushing the, the limits a little bit but yeah managed to get through it and get it and we got it graded yeah it's it's funny i mean, i'm a i'm a nerd so um i've stayed interested in that technology stuff all the way through um when i was working at bunker we were using the red one camera like very early on um like very early like to the at the, at the stage when you still had to like have a bit of sort of creative skill to write your own software to do little bits and pieces. Like I used to, to, I wrote a, a piece of software that would um, like gather the the clips that it would it would run whatever the the red decoding software was to gather DPXs of the of the clips that were used in the edit so that we could send them to an online like that that sort of that early in the red workflow stage. Yeah. Yeah, those early days of Red was um, a bit of a wild west of getting great image quality out of it and understanding the workflow for colour especially. I'm still not 100% sure it's fixed. <laughs> red is, yeah, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't been a... The problem I've always had, the biggest problem I've always had with Red, um, with, their, with their cameras, with, with having to work with Red cameras, is that um, you still basically have to visit the Red user forums if you want to be able to use a Red camera. Yeah, I do not like those forums. So, um, at Bunker was that with um, who was there? Luke, it's Luke hey? Sharp. Yeah, Luke. It's, it's his company. Yeah, um, we've had another guest, Rich Nosworthy, on. He's he's done some three D work for Luke in the past right. at Bunker. Luke's great. I love Luke. He's um, really creative and uh, amazingly good at um, at making things happen. Yeah, yeah, really nice guy. Really, and I haven't worked um, for him, but um, he, they've done some work for us, and yeah, awesome dude. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so, um, I I have really fond memories of images, sound when we were working there, just basically because it was before I had a wife and children, so I was a little bit reckless and <laughs> getting drunk <laughs> a lot. In the early days, it was it was when I had it was it was when I had my first kid. I actually started that job because right. um, I was basically earning just over minimum wage when I was working at, at Touchdown, and I needed a proper job, and that yeah. was that seemed like a proper job. So I, I managed to get managed to get in there, um, and that was sort of the first the first step on uh, on a road towards a better career, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people have been through that that building and um have gone on to some really successful creative careers that have um worked for them um i think even um andrew adamson worked there at one point and yeah that wouldn't surprise me yeah um just thinking of the way it was back then in the post that you know we had these big iron boxes with the um the flames and the smokes and the discreet and and then um I I decided that I could 
I knew that we could do more and I was sort of pigeonholed into doing graphics on a PC and sort of stuck in my little corner. So that's when I went into advertising and then suddenly it's like all these roles that I had seen but never had hands-on, I had to really start getting my head around, which is basically offline editing, online editing, finishing, grading, graphics, audio, you know, all of it combined. It's funny because, I mean, images at that time was still operating in a very... Uh, rigid model in the in the one that it had existed and, and still definitely does exist for a lot of productions but that is you know where you have your offline editors who, who cut and, and barely do anything else like there were editors that I worked with at Images like you know who'd been hired by the productions to do these shows and they'd dry hire edit suites from us and I'd you know help them um, there were editors there who didn't who literally couldn't apply any effect you know on a clip they just didn't have any concept of effects at all but they would great storytellers yeah so there was that there was like this offline stage and then you know the offline editor hands it off to an online editor and it's a completely separate thing and it's completely separate hardware and it's charged at different rates and it's all different and then the off online editor hands it off to a colorist who does you know and now those workflows are much more um much more fluid you've either got situations where one person you know is all of those roles or where those roles are working a lot more closely with one another and the inter the interchange of of, um, of content is is sort of more fluid and back and forth uh, yeah. which is which is a big change and and usually for the better although there are times when um, some productions and some directors maybe don't don't uh, without that sort of delineation kind of never step off yeah I've um I've definitely seen that all the roles have blurred for most people and definitely at the high end there's still the dedicated roles but for the majority of people working um, they they just need to be able to do more and more is expected of them. Yeah, and it's not always for the best though. Like, no. You know, there's that that um, sort of phrase, that you know, it's an idiom that... that um, what is it? Master of master or jack of all, master of none, something like yeah. that. You know that there is there is to an extent you can, you can't be great at everything, and I guess you just have to know uh, when you know at, at what point your your skill and experience uh, reaches a, a, a point at which you need to you know look look for other other help. And for a lot of projects, it's fine; you can do it all yourself. You know, I'd make a happily make a YouTube video and do everything. Um, but if I'm, you know, if someone's paying me money to uh, make a television commercial or something, I'm not going to, I'm probably not going to color it and I'm definitely not going to do the sound. Um, you know, th- those sorts of things. Yeah, no, it's, you're totally spot on. It's um, knowing what your strengths are and what you can do, but also just communicating to those on the project where it just makes more sense to get someone who's specialist or, it, it can literally, it just saves money sometimes, the amount of headaches of, you know, um, fixing problems by walking into a situation a bit blind to what the real challenges are going to be. Yeah, when you don't fully understand something, it's very easy to completely screw it up. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And if you, don't, if you don't, didn't understand it well enough in the first place, then fixing it's not going to be an option either. No, no. I think um, your producers will respect you a lot more if you're just open to them about that this this part of the project is definitely better to outsource 
for the cost effectiveness of this budget that's something that i use i like to use that line a lot <laughs> yeah but i mean don't stop you know don't stop learning and don't stop playing like there's just because and this is the other thing like just because it's not part of your job right now to do you know x y and z maybe you know it's not your job to do title treatments or it's not your job to do grading but that doesn't mean you know when you get a, a spare moment you shouldn't have a little little tutu a little a little fiddle around and see if you can figure it out because yeah. um, even if you're never going to get anyone to pay you to do that at least you know sometimes just having that that, that basic understanding means that you have a better um, basis for communication with people when they when with you know with other people in those roles you know if you if you can speak the same language or understand what's happening you can do a you can do a better um, exchange of ideas yeah definitely and also be um, be the voice for the project when talking to the specialist about um, said area I, I love learning. It's something that I really enjoy about um, video and film and television and commercials and online. Is that there's always something to keep learning. I do find that I try to spend um, a bit of a chunk of time um, giving myself a bit more time to really develop in an area. So for me, say color grading, that was a four-year timeline that I really dedicated myself to understanding color and going through photography and grading footage, any kind of footage that I could get and really studying it. And the thing was that, like you said before, I wasn't a colorist in my role, but I knew that that was something I was passionate about and chipped away and shared that I was passionate about it and doing this on my own so that others were aware that I was interested in it and so suddenly when the budgets weren't available to send it to a dedicated colorist, those jobs started coming to me because others were aware that that was something that I had given my time to. Yeah. Isn't it weird when you meet someone who doesn't want to learn things? Like I, <laughs> every now and again you, you meet someone who's just, who's just like, oh, I don't want to learn new things. And I just find that so baffling. Yeah. I, I, I just can't even think in that mindset because there's so much you know just to stay in our roles we have to keep developing and learning even if you're not growing any further yeah absolutely and that's that's part of the challenge like this you know like it used to be well arguably it still is you can you can be an editor without being technical like i mean that's what i'm talking about editors obviously you know for other other roles like if you if you're doing motion graphics and things you probably have to have some degree of uh technical um understanding because um that stuff is is inherently more technical but you can be an editor and not be technical but you're going to find that it's going to limit your opportunities and it's going to um sometimes limit even what you can do creatively in a in a job that you do have um and so that's a challenge like because if you're not technical like how do you you know someone's going to talk to you about discrete cosine transforms and and like macro blocks like what you know but you don't have to understand all of it you just have to kind of get the gist of it yeah and then understand how that gist applies to new things yeah and um i think community is a really easy one now to get the gist of things connecting with the community to help you understand so much easier than when i've graduated from school and there was there was nothing online and so your community was really uh, those that you graduated with and then those that you worked with. 
and learning from those. And it feels like the opportunities to be mentored um, aren't as available as they used to with the um, apprentice-type roles. But, yeah, that was the only way that we could really learn is, like, you know, I remember asking senior people at Im- Images and Sounds so many questions, and I, I remember Brenton explaining what full-height anamorphic was. I was like, ah, okay, okay yeah. get it now. That, that was a thing that, yeah, that was a thing we had to understand that no one else did. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. There's, there's kind of a flip side to that, of course, is now it's almost like there's too much information sometimes. Mm. Like, if you're trying to find the answer to a specific thing now it can be challenging because um, there's a hundred answers and uh, a lot of them are conflicting and some of them are five years old and you're like, oh, I don't know. So, I mean, part of the skill now is also navigating the answers, yeah. like picking the right answers, not even not even just, you know, knowing knowing how to find answers and picking the right ones is, is a, a skill unto itself. Yeah, that's why I've, belong to a few different Slack groups where the conversations are a little bit more private than, say, a conversation on a Facebook group. Um, And, yeah, you kind of of find the people that you value and respect what their opinions are or what their knowledge is. So I found that really valuable. So I'm also going to do a little plug in uh, listeners. There's going to be a link to our Slack group, so feel free to join and ask away. Um, I've been invited to like three Slack groups in the last week and I just can't be bothered <laughs> setting up a Slack account, but maybe I should. You should, man. It's real easy to add a new one once you've got the initial account. I think I've got like five going at the moment and jump in and out of them. It's like IRC. I don't know if I can bring myself. All right, <laughs> maybe. I'll send you the link. Jump in, see if it's useful. I promise nothing. <laughs> it's all good. So I want to talk about... Um, Working on a huge long-form show like Shortland Street as post-production supervisor, um, is there a sort of a weekly cycle or is a show sort of in a, a you know, what's what's a sort of a cycle look for an episode? So it's a weekly cycle. We do five episodes as a block. So um, uh, it's complicated because it spans multiple weeks. But yeah. essentially, on a, so let's say uh, on Monday next week, they will shoot a day of location for, let's say, I mean, I'm just going to keep the numbers simple. For Monday next week, they'll shoot a day of location for block 10. Mm-hmm. And then on Tuesday, in the studio, they'll be shooting block 9 for the rest, basically for the rest of the week. So block 10, the location stuff has been shot the week ahead of the studio week. Yep. Then the following week, Monday will be location for block 11. And then, say, Tuesday through Friday will be studio stuff for block uh, 10 yep. and so by the end of Friday you've got the location and all the studio stuff for block 10 um, and at the same time that that's been happening one of our two editors has been sitting downstairs pulling scenes in basically as they're shot um, cutting them up and laying out the episodes um, or any of the five episodes because obviously they stack scenes so you know you'll have all the cafeteria scenes for all five episodes will usually be shot back to back um, and so on so yeah that, that's essentially how it is so by Friday afternoon the editor downstairs has edited um, basically everything that's been shot up to probably a few hours earlier Monday they then finish those last few scenes that were shot on Friday 
Monday afternoon, the director will come in. Tuesday afternoon, director's in with them as well. Those two days are the director's days to edit. Wednesday, they screen for the producer. Thursday, the producer comes back and, and oversees their notes. So they'll screen for the producer. producer will make notes about changes. Thursday morning, the editor will um, go ahead and uh, make the changes that the producers asked for, and then the producer will come and check those changes. Friday... Um, we package all that stuff off and send it up to the network and things like that to, to approve of. And then Friday, uh, that editor will also go and do the sound mix for the block they last did, which is two blocks earlier, because there's two editors and they're kind of, um, they're kind of uh, leapfrogging. And that's it, basically. And then, you know, after that, there's also some um, post, you know, sound, sound, uh, sound finishing and, and picture finishing. But that's the, the bulk of it happens like that. Right, and um, a show like this, using sort of um, exterior scenes and location scenes, having those on hand um, that might not have been shot on that week? Yeah, so they they shot all those, they shoot all those a week earlier so that um, they have all the continuity for for the studio stuff. So essentially, um, that all all the location scenes set the continuity for the studio. Um, So... You know that that's the primary reason, um, and then they they go from there. That's just the the structure that's been established. And I think the the way we shoot is broadly based on how Neighbours was shot. And I don't know right. if, you know how far back it goes, like whether Neighbours was based on like Emmerdale Farm or something. I'm not <laughs> sure. You know where the structure comes from. Yeah. Do you ever have to go back into um, footage that was shot some time ago? Not, not for that block to use. No, that. only ever for um, like some establishing shots and things. But you know, we just have those sectioned off separately. In fact, ours are getting a bit aged now. We really need some new ones. But no, that, yeah. that's all we do. That's the only stuff that we kind of pull from archive, really. Yeah, and um, it's produced and mastered in HD. Is it? Yeah. So the cameras we about uh, about eighteen months ago. Well, actually, more than that now. Nearly two years ago. So. Christmas, uh, not last one, but the one before that. So Christmas between what 2000, 2015, 2016. Mm-hmm. We um, upgraded all the cameras. So we have three weeks off over Christmas. So that's the only time we can make a change because um, every other week of the year we are shooting five days a week, 10 hours a day. Um, so yeah, we, we replaced all the cameras. We took out, we had a bunch of, they were HD cameras, but they were old Sony two thirds inch studio cameras. And we replaced them with um, Panasonic Vericam 35s. So we got five of those and five uh, Canon 17 to 120 lenses. Um, and the studio ones are all set up in like a studio pedestal configuration. They look like, you know, like cameras you'd see in a new studio or whatever. Um, and we have a vision switcher. And so a lot of the scenes are switched. Um, and some scenes aren't just because that way you can make sure you've got all the way through the scene, essentially. Right, and then you've got the so these are multicam shoots, and they're vision switched at the time. But then you can make your edit decision based on yeah. That. So we record everything onto we've got a um, a company called Edit Share. You know, I don't know if you know if Edit Share, but they're they do like you usually know of Edit Share if you had like an Avid system and you were using um, their shared storage instead of Avid Unity or whatever they call it now, Avid. Nexus, yeah, because it's not ISIS anymore because that name wasn't any good. <laughs> um, so we have Edit Share Storage, and they also have a product called Jeeves, which is a multi-channel server-based recording system. Uh, and so everything we shoot 
is uh, recorded. We get ISOs from all three cameras, plus we record the line cut. And so in some scenes, we'll just use the line cut, and in some scenes, we'll go right back to ISOs and, and recut everything. Yeah. Um, and a lot of scenes are kind of a mix of both. We've got an edit share as well, and um, it's an interesting one with its proxies as well, um, with Arc, which is the backup yep. section of it, and Flow and Flow Browse for proxies. Do you utilize that at all? Yeah, so all of that stuff is part of our workflow. So obviously, um, every frame of footage we shoot is backed up, and then it's backed up onto tape, onto like LTO data tape, yep. and we hold those for a period of time. Um, and then once shows are finished, they're all um, you know archived in a number of ways as well. Like we'll, we'll do consolidations of the finished episodes, so save you know every clip with fifty frame handles or whatever, so we can bring it all back as an editable thing if we need to. Yeah. Um, and they're all archived off to tape, and then we make various deliverable formats for different different outputs. Um, save those as well, so we can you know if someone needs later on, we can spit out a, a DNX HD one eighty five or whatever they need. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's you know that that post workflow is uh, is pretty simple, but uh, and all the grading um, is done in the Avid timeline with the baselight for Avid at the moment. Oh, baselight, nice. Yeah. So they've got a, a timeline. They call it baselight editions, and so it's essentially the baselight engine, but built into an Avid plugin. So I don't have to take media out of Avid or anything like that, and I get all the power of the baselight grading engine yeah. on my timeline. Um, recently had Paul Lear from Images on and he's been a long time um, colorist using Baselight too yeah I, I sort of need to get Paul or Alana to come in to, to work and actually show me how to use Baselight properly because <laughs> I am convinced there is a bunch of functionality in that that I am not taking advantage of but, yeah uh, I just haven't ever really had a chance unfortunately all the like all the color training out there is really um, focused on Resolve and I have a Resolve mm. license as well but um the workflow, you know, requiring uh, exports and creation of new media um, is just not practical for, for the volume of, of content we're doing. Like, I'm essentially, we're doing a, a two-hour feature film, you know, we're doing a hundred and, f- we're doing one hour and 54 minutes of finished programming every week. So, yeah. um, you know, to Resolve doesn't fit my workflow. No, well, um, it's, it's interesting how um, the tools that you get into production um, just, just need to work and everybody needs to know how to use them it's an, um, for me myself I found it really difficult to um, get everybody in different areas of the business using flow browse um, yeah. it's not the most intuitive interface and um, so it's a really powerful tool but you know if someone's deterred from using it um, it's hard for us to take advantage of the value it adds yeah it's funny as well like you get you get these things like I you know you get these religious wars about editing software you know um, Avid Premiere Final Cut Pro and you know the old Final Cut Pro and the new Final Cut Pro and people are like you know people get quite upset about it like oh well you know Final Cut Pro 10's great now why don't you use it and it's like well because it doesn't do the things we need for this particular job which doesn't mean it's not a good piece of software or whatever but it's it doesn't have the functionality that we need for this workflow yeah and it's really weird like there's there's good products for certain workflows yeah and you can kind of i always get baffled by people who like you, you read these articles like such and such feature film cut on final cut pro 10 i'm like that's cool it can but why 
I've had that myself where I've had people really hit me up about the fact that Final Cut X is really valid and faster and way better for so many reasons and it's like yeah but I've got a whole team of people who are using Premiere really effectively with all the other tools as well as everybody else in the business and I have a pool of freelancers that I know I can bring in and they can jump on it and I don't know that pool for that tool and it's it's like well, the effectiveness is great if you're one person and you can make all those decisions but when your decisions are based on many others and a much bigger um, workflow uh, it, you, you really have to think and a, a change in software can actually be a take a while to implement and um, get everyone trained and make sure everyone's supported and feels comfortable and it's not a light yeah, and decision, it's, and it's not just the it's not just the obvious front end stuff, right? It's not just you know how here's how you do an edit and here's how you apply an effect, and it's like okay, but when I've got four editors or you know two editors and two motion graphics guys working on this one project, how do they interact with one another? And yeah, what's the etiquette for this thing, and how do we do this? And it's like you know like that's the complex stuff, not the not yeah. the how do you do the in and the out and the put on the <laughs> timeline. Like you know, I can figure that out. And, you know, it'll take a little while to get to get up to speed with it but like that part's easy it's the every other part of the workflow okay well cool i finished my project now how do i send it to my colorist i finished my project now how do i send it to the audio post guys you know um, and that's that's amazing how how people are um so willing to overlook the practical logistics of production and it's easy when you're doing your own projects and you in your own time and your time is your money but I think people sometimes get a little um, optimistic about um, about things, and you know it's fun to be on the leading edge. But um, sometimes you need to take a step back and think about um, what is you know super effective in day to day work. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I've just got a really practical view of like what we need to produce, and that yeah. means. Um, a project might actually have to be handed off to four different people. And so I need everybody to understand what that workflow is and be able to do their part wherever they are in that project's journey. Yeah, and you can, of course, install, you know, Final Cut X. You can figure out how to use them all in your spare time and then, you know, one day a project will come up and you go, I know what is the perfect way to approach this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting working with um, workflows and a bigger team, and yeah, it's something that I'm looking at at the moment. Um, I think I think you should always be trying to look at see if there is optimizing, but you know, being aware of how you can make things better and then just doing a massive overhaul. Uh, yeah, you have to pick your times right. Yeah, absolutely, and but keep an eye on the technology because you don't also don't want to be you know hanging on to like there are still people out there cutting on Final Cut Pro 10 and I'm like that's cool but at some point and in fact apparently that point has arrived now that's yeah. just going to stop working yeah well I was surprised that someone was asking for a tool to translate um, Final Cut Pro 10 um, the old Final Cut um, to the new one like because it's a big massive Workaround. It's like Apple hasn't, you know, provided a way. I'm like, well, why are so many people still got those files or need those files? It's it's been a <laughs> long time. That was always one of the big criticisms of Final Cut Pro 10 or X, is that 
you know, oh, well, how do I open? I've got like I've got like five years of client projects archived. How am I ever going to access them again? And that is a fully legitimate concern that Apple did not well address because I can open, I have literally opened 10 or 15-year-old Avid projects mm-hmm. in the current version of Avid, whatever that version happens to be at the time, you know. Yeah. And sure, it might have some weird errors and some things don't look quite right, but the damn thing opens. Yeah, it's weird that Apple never developed like a droplet app where you could just uh, yeah. drop your f- file on it and it will convert it and away you go. Yeah, it is, it is funny, but oh well. And now it's time for the Pro Video Picks. At the end of each show, Dylan, we have a section called Pro Video Picks. It's just a way of the audience uh, being exposed to different things, whether they're yeah. products. Yeah, you sent me a document and I looked at those and I went, I don't know, but go on, have a go. <laughs> okay, it's a fun game everybody at home can play too. <laughs> so, yeah, it's um, best if they do. Pro Video Pick can be anything. It's really about something that you find useful in your professional career. Or maybe it's like... I keep saying Twitter, but all right. <laughs> you can say that. So, what's your pick, mate? Uh, so, where what do we? You, you broke it down to categories, didn't you? So, we got like some. Was it? Uh, hang on, I have got the document here. I'll even look at what you wrote me. <laughs> it says, uh, "It says, don't read this bit out on here. It's really important." Oh no, sorry. Here we go. Um, so, there are a couple of things that I am constantly fascinated by uh, in the in the pro video industry. Um, one is I pay attention to everything Avid's doing because it's a huge part of my professional life. Um, and a lot of people poo-poo Avid, and that's fine. But for the industry I work in specifically, broadcast film, uh, broadcast television and, and film, um, Avid's still the king. So I'm paying attention to whatever they're doing, um, which is sometimes boring and a little bit slow. That's <laughs> fine. Um, I'm also really constantly fascinated by Blackmagic Design mm. because... They're this company that just seems to refuse to listen to anyone else about the way things should be. Um, And they make these products that are kind of amazing and sometimes a little bit flaky and not quite there the first time around. But regardless, they are usually incredible value for money um, and and they often um, get better with time. Uh, And they are challenging the industry in an interesting way so those those things are are um two sort of picks cool man that's really good um avid's avid's been criticized a bit has been you know the leader in the industry with when it comes to film and television and sort of not evolving as fast as the others but it's a tool that so many people at the top of their game really enjoy using so you know i for those who think that's not for them there's a real reason why it works for so many people in a professional sense look i mean broadly speaking i've always i've always maintained that if you want to work as an editor in the television industry especially but film and television um learn avid and it doesn't mean you have to use avid all the time but if you know how to use avid that's a great starting point like i've not hired people because i didn't have avid skills like absolutely i've i've rejected cvs for that reason um but the other thing is Avid's typically the most constrictive of the editing platforms, right? So if you know how to do it the Avid way, it usually isn't very hard to figure out how to do it some other software's way. But if you've only ever learnt, I don't know, Premiere or Final Cut Pro or something, um, then sometimes Avid can feel really alien and constrictive. 
yeah. um, and it can be a lot harder to go from from that sort of more open and easy way of doing things to the slightly more um, prescribed avid way of doing things so you know that's that's just always been my kind of uh, general advice around that yeah and there's no reason now why you can't learn it as well um, with them um, recently having a free version available yep which will make you swear at it but that's fine that's what proper editing's about <laughs> oh yeah um, swearing at your computer <laughs> Far too much. My pick is Redshift. So um, I really love 3D and motion design. Um, Redshift is a new GPU um, renderer. It's come out of beta recently and just be, just bought a license. And yeah, I've um, uh, it's just so fast. You know, for years having to wait for renders, literally wait 15 minutes before you see an image. Now to to see it real time feedback as you're moving lights around, changing materials, camera, it's just so different for me. So Redshift, um, for those out there doing 3D, works in um, all the main 3D apps. And um, for Cinema 4D, I've been really loving uh, BroGraph's recent um, tutorial, tutorial series as well as the follow-up Twitch sessions, um, also YouTube Live. Liam's doing a fantastic job on that, really enjoying it. I, I just need to find some time to really dive into Redshift and get the most out of that. So thanks, BroGraph and Liam, for um, all that content you're putting out. Really appreciate it. And Dylan... Um, who do you follow online? It's like, um, yeah. I follow heaps of people online. Like Twitter is a hu- Twitter has been a huge part of my since Twitter's come about. Twitter's been a huge part of my life for post. So there's a, a Twitter hashtag called Post Chat, which I followed a lot, and I know a bunch of editors. And every time I go to the states, I um, I always meet up with a, a, a handful of editors and people like that, and it's really cool. Um, it's chilled out a little bit because now everyone's just yelling about Trump on the on Twitter. So, you know, there's not so, so much video stuff on there now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just, I mean, Twitter is most of my social media and kind of um, things like that. So. Sweet. That's basically it. And there's, and there's a handful of people. There's just, there's a bun- bunch of, you know, post-production, uh, filmmaking, all sorts of people. Any Anyone that you off the top of your head that you'd name uh was it oh god i can never remember the that the the names when i need to um vfx is it vfx guru yeah um there's him uh there's um no i can't i can't think of enough uh i mean there's lots there's there's a few twitter lists if you go looking for them of of editors and post-production people on well the easiest follow most of those people the easiest way is the listeners can follow you on Twitter and then they can look at don't who you're that. following. Don't, don't do that. But, but look up my thing and then you'll find that I'm listed on some lists of post-production people. Just follow those people because I'm mostly yelling about Trump and posting, posting um, pictures of sunrises. Uh, I, I really enjoy following you, Dylan. So um, I recommend the listeners follow you too. So well, that's, that's my... <laughs> um, yeah, so that's who I follow. And also... Um, Big shout out to NodeFest. Um, Node's coming up next month in Melbourne. Really looking forward to it so much. And um, James has just been announcing some giveaways of Redshift, which is why I'm tying in. He's, um, when you hear this episode, this would have been a few weeks ago at the time of the recording. But yeah, uh, NodeFest, uh, yes, Captain, James Cohen, they're giving away Redshift um, licenses as well. So... Go check out Node. Um, they got some amazing ident comps entries. 
looking fantastic. So some amazing inspirational work there as well. And do you pretend? Do you, do you like pretend that this that this is is recorded on a certain certain time or day? Like, can I can I ruin the illusion of when this is recorded? Oh uh, no! I hope the listeners realise that I've got a full on day job, so it takes me a good couple of weeks to get these episodes out. Because <laughs> because as we're recording this, like literally the moment I just I just clicked over to another tab in my browser and yeah. found out who the the New Zealand government is now. Oh, did you? Um, okay. Yep. So breaking the, news two weeks ago. <laughs> breaking news two weeks ago. Winston Peters has chosen to make Labour the government. This is. Quite Quite exciting, wow. which means the new Prime Minister of New Zealand follows me on Twitter. That's pretty exciting. That's so exciting. Well, I mean, it is, it is also a government that involves a lot of Winston Peters. And, uh, yeah, that's a whole different uh, podcast. Okay, so for our international listeners, basically, we've had no government for, what, three weeks? A month. Even? It's a month, isn't it? It's been ridiculous because um, the way our government works, it's... Um, majority seats and um, yeah, one party has been holding the country ransom while they decide which of the two leading parties they'll go with but yeah we, w- we won't turn this into a political episode but that's yeah that's awesome but yeah there you go the, the, both both Jacinda and her husband oh, sorry partner um, Clark follow me on Twitter so that's pretty exciting <laughs> for me I'm, I'm quite quite into that yep um, yeah that's awesome okay cool well um I've got to remember where we're at in the show now. <laughs> Some links or something, videos. Videos, stuff, yeah. Oh, go and have a drink with my wife. She'll be stoked. Huge Labour supporter. So um, anyway, <laughs> um, what inspirational video could you share with the audience? Oh, this is actually quite... So, um, all right. So do you have Netflix? I do. Netflix? Um, <laughs> Netflix, mate. Not flux. Um, so I've been watching. There's a David Fincher series called Mindhunter on Netflix. Yeah. Um, which I've only just started watching. I'm about three episodes in, and I started watching it because someone told me that the eighth episode features uh, a high school principal who's into tickling or something. Which <laughs> obviously I have to see that because that's pretty weird. But anyway, it's a David Fincher series, and it's there's something about the quality of it, the 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 way it looks, the way it feels, um, that has me puzzled. And I really like it. And there's a few things. It's got these really incredible, um, like, location titles that are just text filling almost the entire screen, which is just really unusual, mm-hmm. quite jarring, and really cool. So that's one aspect of it. Um, and then another thing is um, the very first episode, there's a scene that takes place in a bar. And if you've ever watched television or movies, you know when a scene takes place in a bar, it's usually like. Uh, the quietest bar you've ever been in, even if they've yeah. got music playing, it's quiet so that you can totally hear all of the dialogue that the important characters are saying. Well, this isn't like that. They mixed this loud to the point where you actually, in the first part of it, you actually have to really strain to listen to what's being said, which is cool. And then the second part of it, it's so inaudible that they've even subtitled it. Oh, right. And I nice. love that. Um, as a... You know, as a anyway, there's a there's a whole aspect of the series that is amazing, and I couldn't figure out why. And a video came out today as we we're recording this from uh, Nerd Writer. Do you follow Nerd Writer? No, I don't. If, anyway, I will. Um, Nerd Writer is a, a, a one of those video essay channels on YouTube, and it looks at um, uh, typically mostly film and television, and and some aspects of how things are constructed and why things are constructed. And it's really good. And he did an episode on David Fincher, and it's kind of mind-blowing. 
when he breaks down sort of this one aspect of um, David Finch's filmmaking that makes it sort of a lot of what it is. And it's both uh, simple and incredibly complex. And um, yeah, it's sort of mind-blowing anyway. So uh, check out Nerd Writer's um, breakdown of David Fincher and then watch every other video he's ever made. Sweet. Nerd Writer. Awesome. That's a great one for the audience to follow and um, really think about what's been, what's going behind that content. My inspirational video is something that I found really beautiful. It's called The Loneliest Whale. It's on Vimeo. It's um, a motion design piece, but it's um, it's from Phil Borst. Um, he did it for the Washington Post magazine and um, created a short story, short animation, and it's really beautiful. Uh, it's really illustrative. Illustrative? You know, for a podcast, I can't really talk very well, can I? Um, it's a hard... <laughs> Uh, is it feels really 2D, but the lighting is so beautiful considering most of it's underwater and it's very blue, but you still, yeah, the lighting's really intense and um, the animation, it actually feels like it's been made in 3D, but the 2D illustrative rendering of it is stunning. So check that out and all the other links will be on the show notes and on this episode with your whatever podcatcher of choice you're listening to or if you're listening online. And Dylan, where can people follow you online? Where can they find you? Um, I mean, in most places that I exist, I'm just Dylan Reeve, D-Y-L-A-N-R-E-E-V-E. Because luckily my name is uh, generally unique enough that I can just be that. So on Twitter, Dylan Reeve on Twitter, and uh, that probably works on Facebook and other things like that. But Twitter's, you know, the most logical place. Yep. I'm Blair Walker on Twitter. I was pretty stoked to get in early. I didn't use it for a good couple of years, but I got the name. That's the most important thing about being online. I realized <laughs> I could have had, when I joined Twitter, if I'd tried, I could have got Dylan. I'm pretty sure uh, it was available when I joined, but I didn't think of it. And then by the time I did, it was too late. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's been around for a while now. I don't think we really thought in those terms. It was just like, oh, yeah, my name's there. Sweet. At least I didn't choose some stupid, like, 90s nickname that I used or something. <laughs> like, yeah, Awesome Blair. I didn't grab that one. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> um, okay, audience, following us online, I'd really, really like you guys to f- join the Facebook group um, and share share the episodes out if you're sharing it to um, people you're connected with I think that that really um, shows that there's some content here worth listening so if you've enjoyed this episode and other episodes please share it whether that's on Facebook Twitter or any other way you know um, I'd really like to um, grow the audience because I want you to also get in touch with me and to be on the show that's a, a real big key one for me and recently I've been chatting to a number of people in that Facebook group and they're coming on literally everyone who I've started having conversations with I'm like Are you, will you come on and a lot of people go oh, I'm not sure what do I have to say and the fact is you're working in the industry you're passionate enough to listen and get connected you have something to say so yeah please join the Facebook group and um, love to have a chat. So hit me up there. And finally, thank you so much, Dylan, for being on the show. I've, I've been hounding you for a while, so um, I'm sorry if I was a bit um, annoying. Well, I'm just very noncommittal because I, I never quite know uh, 
what I'm going to be doing and there's all these kids everywhere and you yeah. know how it is. I definitely do. I definitely do know. Um, and uh, people want to check out um, Tickled. Um, where, where can they find that? Um, look, the easiest thing to do is just go to tickledmovie.com. Cool. Um, definitely check it out. It's one of the most um, engaging documentaries that I've watched in such a long time when I saw it. So, yeah, check that out. Thank you again, Dylan, and thank you, everybody else, for listening this week. Uh, normal social medias, Twitter, Facebook. We're Pro Video Podcast on all of those, so follow us there. And thank you very much for listening, and I'll catch you next week. All right. Thanks, Dylan. See you, see you later, mate. Thanks, Blue. Okay. Bye. Join the conversation on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Pro Video Podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes. 